Man, we just had a great week, did we not? It was an awesome week. It was an awesome week of worship and preaching and time of the Word and testimonies and prayer. Baptism changed lives. Uh, we, uh, we had this week called Prelude to Revival. We just spent uh, six nights in the Word, six mornings in the Word and prayer. Uh, it was just unbelievable time. Um, and what we want to see is just, just continue to encourage one another. And for those of you who missed it, we, we have the night sessions, the night preaching audio online. If you want to go on our website, those six nights are online. And we're going to try to get the morning outlines up as well so you can continue to listen to those of those of you who were unable to come. And it was great. I know some of you couldn't make it this week, but you followed along with the live feed. It was glad that you could be encouraged as well by staying at home and, and still participating. Well, you know what? We don't want to stop this. We feel like God has stirred us up. We want to keep going what God did among us this week. So we're going to have a couple of venues, what this could look like uh, beyond just our personal lives, but corporately. After Easter, during our uh, ethos communities, as we finish up the, the school year and the rest of the year, after Easter, in our ethos communities, we're going to be talking about something called continuous revival, how this this, what, this can be a continual revival within our hearts and our lives, and so we'll interact with one another on what does continuous revival look like. And then on Sunday mornings, starting after Easter, for those of you who want to come to the life training hour, we're going to have something called Revival Redux. All right, how about that? All right, we're just going to revisit some of the topics that we hit and, and dive deeper. But for today, I want to see... What, what does it look like in the Bible when God moves in powerful ways, His Spirit is just poured out, and, and people start to be changed, and lives are overhauled? I want to look at a time in the Bible where God moved by the power of His Holy Spirit and see what the early believers looked like impacted by God. So let's turn in our Bibles to Acts chapter 2. Look at the book of Acts chapter 2. Now, for those of you who want to have some context here, uh, the day of Pentecost has just occurred in Acts 2, where Peter preached the gospel of Jesus from Jews from all around the world, and about 3,000 repented of their sins and were saved and were, were baptized. So the book of Acts, this is Jesus, he goes into heaven, spirit is poured out, we have about 120 believers. Peter preaches now we got 3,000 believers. And that they move from this massive church kind of growth revival moment, and they move into community. And, let, and let, watch and see what happens next. I believe this passage is so crucial for, for, for all of us in here. And I hope this passage sticks with you for years and years and years. So let's jump in. Acts chapter 2, starting in verse 42. Let's all stand this morning. Acts 2, starting in verse 42. What happens after a great move of God? Starting in verse 42. Let's engage the text. Here we go. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul. And many wonders and signs were being done to the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, 
attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. You may be seated. What we just read was a description of what happened. And yet I believe from the rest of the New Testament, we have great support to show that this is what it should look like within the community of God when God shows up among his people. And I don't know about you, but maybe some of the things that you just read were just flat out radical, right? Like, that's just radical. But for the New Testament early believers, to them, it's normal. And what I want to see happen in our church is that the normal for them, which is radical to us to live like this, would start to be the norm for us. And we would say, yeah, that's normal for them. It's radical to us. Let's just go ahead and make it the normal radical for us. How about that? Let's not just say, well, here, here's some cool New Testament stuff, and those radical Christians who want to live like this, they're just a select bunch. But no, 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 let's just say, that's normal for them. Though it's radical for some of us, no, no, no. It's a normal radical for all of us. This is what it looks like when the New Testament church is impacted by the Spirit of God. And I don't know about you, but this is the way I want to live. Is anybody down with me at all? Anybody want to live this way? This normal, radical Christian life that we have presented before us? I do. So let's just kind of set the scene and jump into verse 42. Check it out. It says, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. So they're not only devoted to Jesus, they're also devoted to his church. So they're all in, devoted to Jesus, and they're all in, devoted to his church. The reality of the the early Christians is this, this devotion to Jesus and devotion to his church. And before I go any further, I want to emphasize, reemphasize, overemphasize as much as I can. The reality of the New Testament Christians, and it should be our reality as well, is they are devoted to Jesus and devoted to his church. It's been said many times before. We cannot say that we love Jesus and hate the church or can't stand the church. It's like saying, you like me, but you can't stand my wife, all right? That's not the way we're going to go here, because the bride is considered the wife, the bride of Jesus, the church. And so we want to be devoted to Jesus and devoted to his church. So God may have moved in you this last week, and I know he did. Oh, I know he did, because the testimonies that came out of this week, the brokenness, the healing, the confession, it was amazing. But as much as happened to you as an individual this week, it's not meant to terminate on you at all. It's not just for you. We're here as a body. We're collectively together to grow together. So we're going to be devoted to Jesus and devoted to his church. And we want that to be our normal radical. Now, before I go any further, I want to add one more word to our phrase this morning. We're talking about the normal, radical Christian life, and I want to just tack on one more word that tends to be left out of the discussion, and that is the word balanced. So if you're going to put it all together, we're going to call it the balanced, normal, or radical Christian life. How many words can we put together? 
the balanced, normal, radical Christian life. And let me tell you what I mean by balanced. What tends to happen with this passage is that many of you, including myself, including many movements and denominations around the world, we come to this passage and we pick things out of here that fit us, that fit our denomination, that fit our background. And we maybe circle it and underline it and say, yes, amen. And then we ignore some other parts in here, right? And so we don't really have much balance. So let me just tell you what I mean, for example. Many of you come from churches that are big time into preaching the Word of God. Yes, teaching solid doctrine. So you come to this passage and you circle and underline apostolic teaching. Amen. But then you go to other churches and you will see that they emphasize social justice. And they will be underlining and circle the parts of this Bible, that, that, that this passage that has to do with social justice and the believers sharing their goods. And then many uh, denominations that would be considered charismatic, they come to this passage and they're circling and underlining the signs and wonders being done. And then you have Christian groups that are communal in nature. They, they may live together, live close in community, and they're, and they're circling the passages about, about being together and the believers having all their, their goods in common. And then there's some of you who come from these mission-minded church, these gospel-sharing, want to see people saved all the time, and you're circling and underlining all these passages about people getting saved. That's what we tend to do as people. We emphasize our traditions, our denominations, and our, our backgrounds. Maybe we got saved, and, and that was great, and those are good churches. They believe the Bible. But you tend to, maybe not always, but you tend to emphasize certain things and leave out others. Rich Mullins is a, is a great singer. Maybe you've heard of him before. He's, a, uh, he's, he's, he's with the Lord now. But he said he would travel the world. And as he traveled the world, he noticed that believers... And certain parts of the world underlined a lot in their Bible. But if they went to the other side of the world, believers underlined and circled different things. So believers in the West would be underlined and circled the born-again passages. But the ones in more the persecuted part of the world, they're circling the parts about dying, about being a martyr for Christ. And Rich said, if we take all the Bibles in the world and we put them together, everything's going to be underlined. And this is what I want for myself, for our church. And I know many of you are going to leave this church one day and you're going to go off and be part of another church. What, what I want to see is the balance, the balance, normal, radical Christian life where I, I know we do it until we pick and choose. We do. We take this. We don't take that. I'd, I'd like to just take it all. And if that messes with you and if that's not part of your tradition or denomination movement, just, just, let's just take it all and just see what happens this morning. And I'm going to be showing you, hopefully, all of it. And I'm going to hit on some different traditions. We're going to talk about five different descriptions of this balanced, normal, radical, rich Christian life. And what, I, what I'm hoping to do, and it's a scary thing to do, is I'm going to evaluate our church on how we're doing. And there are some things we do great at, and there's some things that we don't do so great. So that's what we're going to do. We're going to look at these five descriptions that's going on here of what it looks like of the early church to function as the church of God in this balanced, normal, normal, radical Christian life. So let's, number one, let's put it up. Number one, apostolic teaching. Look at the passage again. Verse 42. And they devoted themselves to the apostolic teaching. What does that mean? 
the apostles are teaching here? Well, these apostles taught the believers biblical truth. They, they taught the truth centered on Christ from the rest of the word, centered on Christ, all he did along with the rest of the word, and it's fulfilled in him. Basically, when we talk about the apostles' teaching or apostolic teaching, we mean that everything in the word centered on Christ, what we would say, the Bible. Now, traditionally, think historically with me. What is a big movement that really emphasized the word of God? Okay, you can think about the Protestant Reformation, right? They emphasized the importance of the Word of God for every believer and also for the church. Many of you grew up in churches where the Bible was a big deal. Preaching was central. It was the main thing. Bible study was the main thing all the time. And right now, you are sitting in a church that is called Evanston Bible Fellowship. So for 25 years... We've been all about reading the Bible, preaching the Bible, teaching the Bible, and we're devoted to the Word of God centered on Christ. Now, but you know this. It's radical in our day and time to say we are devoted to the Word of God. Many people are cool with you being devoted to God, but when you say you're devoted also to the Word of God to do what it says, they may consider you a radical or, or an extremist. But we can't be devoted to God without being devoted to his word because God's word reveals who he is and his character and the response we're supposed to have. So there's none of this, I'm devoted to God, but I'm going to leave his word kind of on the side. No, no. We want to be devoted to God and devoted to his word. And get this, my brothers and sisters, we want to be devoted to all of it. How it fits together, where the Old Testament plays out, I know there's a lot of complications there, but we want to be devoted to all the Word of God. So I'm going to give you a couple passages that show you that sometimes this is challenging and yet encouraging. This is what the Word of God says from the mouth of Jesus. Let me put this up for you. Luke 14, 27. This is what Jesus says. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. How about teaching that in children's Sunday school? It's not just talking about getting a boo-boo on your arm. It's talking about being willing to die for Christ. Another passage from Jesus' lips. Let's do this one in uh, Matthew. Whoever finds his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Basically, Jesus is saying, come follow me, discard it all, be willing to die, and follow me all the way, as far as I'm going. Be sold out to me completely. There are passages like this all over the Bible that are calling for full, all-in commitment. And it's from the Word of God. And so I want to speak to parents here this morning, okay? Because I know there's going to be future parents and a lot of you singles can get married one day. But parents, I want to speak to you this morning. Raise your kids according to the Word of God and teach them with integrity because one day they're going to read the Bible for themselves and they're going to say, Mom and Dad, why didn't you ever teach us this stuff? What does this stuff even mean to lose your life for Christ, to take up your cross? So with integrity, teach them the whole Bible and tell them that you're devoted to it just as much as you're devoted to God because you're devoted to the God of the Bible. And your friends may say, man, you are, you're off. And even other Christians may review you as an extremist, but there really should be no other way for us to function as a church or as individuals. We're devoted to God completely. We're devoted to his word. Whatever it says, we submit to it. The rest of the world says, that's radical. We say, normal. That's normal. Whatever it says, that's normal. We're going we're to do it. That's normal. 
So that's the first description when God pours out his spirit as his people are devoted to his word. And I think we're pretty good here. We have a lot of room to improve, but I think we really emphasize the word of God. We're really serious about the word. So I, I commend our church historically on this, and let, let's not take it for granted. Let's keep going being devoted to his word. Number two, look at the passage again, verse 42. Fellowship. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship. So not just devoted to the word, also the fellowship. Our church is called Evanston Bible Fellowship. uh, The Greek word is koinonia. It actually means participation. That means we participate in one another's joys and suffering and hardship. We participate together in doing the work of God and spreading the gospel. Now, many traditions, some of you come from these traditions. I don't want to see a show of hands. Many of you come from traditions that are communal in nature. We actually have people in our church that live together in community with, with other believers for many years. Some people are here from Reba Place Church back in the day when they were living in community together, sharing goods together. Some of you come from a Jesus People movement back in the 70s, maybe in the 80s, where there was this communal living. And it's, it's kind of humorous that one of the, the quotes from the Jesus People and their movement uh, talking about living in community, it says this, it says, Many are called, but few can stand it. You get that? It's like you're called into community, but when you get in community, you're like, man, you, you're a mess. And then you realize that you're a mess too, and that's kind of what community is in fellowship. You're kind of dealing with a lot of messiness, but that's what God calls us to, into fellowship. And, and you may be wondering, so are you saying we should all join communes together and create this community? No, I mean, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not saying that that's what should happen, but our fellowship here, should match this in the sense of radicalness. It really should. I think it's going as far as saying that our relationships to one another should be like family. It should be like family. And I'm going to speak to a lot of you young people here. I I know that some of you have some really messed up families. And I know some of you have some really messed up dads. And that kind of just makes you a little directionless. You're not quite sure how to function, how to grow up in some sense. I want to tell you this. There are fathers here for you. There are mothers here for you. That is no joke. We want to function like family with you. My wife and I have been here just about nine years, and we have felt the love of this family, genuine care and concern as we've been living life with one another. And and we can't all be hanging out together because it's just too many people. But we want to we get in these things that we call ethos communities. I'm telling you, if you get in one, you will see the love of people caring for one another. People will build into your lives. So if you're kind of new to us, that's where we have community and fellowship and this family connection. Uh, and and many, of, many of you are in them. And I, I just want to give you kind of a welcome. Any of you want to travel out to Skokie to my house? We meet every Sunday night. And I just want to tell you, we are the oldest group in the church. So if you're looking for a father or a mother or a grandma or grandpa, <laughs> come to our group. We will welcome you. You will be so loved. And that's kind of the connections we want to have in our church, that we're going to be fellowshipping and living life and participating together. And I would say, I've been here nine years, I'm telling you, I- I'm very impressed. 
I, I would say our church does this really good. We do the word good, and we do fellowship really good, and you may think that I'm going to start saying we do everything good. Not the case. Just happens to be the first two things we covered. <laughs> we do really good, all right? So good job. The rest of them, ah, we got to work on, all right? So let's keep moving on. And don't put it up there yet. Let's hold off. I want to show you something first. Look again at verse 42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. Now, it's debatable what this breaking of bread means. I mean, it really is. Scholars go back and forth with this. Does it mean communion, the Lord's Supper, or does it mean meals in general, like just having meals together? And I would just say, either way, Christ is central, and it's a huge part of their fellowship. So they're having communion, they're doing it in the fellowship. They're having meals, they're doing it in the fellowship. So if you don't mind, I'm going to take this breaking of bread and meals, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to lump it into the category of fellowship, okay? Hope that's fair. I'll lump it into the category of fellowship, just describing what they did. All right. Now to continue, whether it's fair or not, I want to lump together the third description. Let me put the third one up for you. I want to lump these two together of prayer and miracles. I just want to kind of keep it together in a category. The early church, (laughs) they were a praying church. They cried out to God with all types of thanksgiving and prayers, and they were asking God to move in a mighty and powerful way. Did you see verse 43 again? It says, And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders... (laughs) And signs were being done through the apostles. That's that's miracles. So they're going out and preaching the word of God. And as a confirmation to the word of God, miracles are just happening. And you want to say, oh, we're going to have all the miracles they had back in the Bible. Well, let's 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 just be really upfront. There's a lot of supernatural stuff in the Bible. But there's a lot of times in the Bible where there's not supernatural stuff. It's not from Genesis or Revelation that it's all supernatural and all miracles. You'll often find in the Bible that miracles are, are, are clumped together or that kind of go together or as one pastor said, they come in clusters. And when they come in clusters, they surround some person's ministry. So, for example, you can think in, in the Old Testament, in the life of Moses, his powerful ministry, miracles, all over the place. You can think of Elijah and the miracles. You can think of Jesus in the miracles or the apostles in the miracles. They're in a certain ministry of these clusters of miracles. So you say, well, what about today? When the word is preached, are there miracles? Well, perhaps sometimes there are. Maybe there are. And so I'm not here today because this doesn't fit with my certain growing up tradition to say miracles never happen. No, but I see the cluster idea in the New Testament and perhaps today when the word of God spreads in a certain country it's never been before, perhaps it's accompanied with miracles. But whatever background you're from, we must all agree that when the preaching of the word goes out and someone is converted, you get no greater miracle than that right there. When someone's heart is changed and saved, that is a miracle. And at times perhaps other miracles may happen throughout the life of the church and throughout the preaching of the word. That is absolutely possible. But when we think about traditions that 
teach and preach miracles and expect miracles, it is the charismatic tradition. And many of you come from charismatic churches, and you're here, and sometimes you put up with us. We appreciate that. But, but I want to tell you this, my charismatic brothers and sisters. We need you. We do need you. Because you know why? Because when I hear you pray, you pray like you actually expect God to do something. I need that. You're so expectant. Like God's about to do something. I'm like, I want to join you in your prayer. You, you encourage me. Because if I could uh, faithfully try to evaluate our church, I, I mean, I I'm, I'm just want to say, as a church on a whole, we don't pray much. We just don't. And when we do, we don't expect much. So the question is, how can we start to pray in such a way that we're more expectant? When I say expectant, I don't mean that we're praying. That means, God, now you have to do something. You're guaranteed to do something because I prayed some certain faith prayer. No, no, no. I'm talking about expectant in the sense of, of hope, hopeful expectation that our Father wants to, wants to answer our prayers so that we may bear fruit. And you know what? This past week, I, I started to see it. I saw it. You're desperate for him. You're desperate and crying out. And God is doing these breakthroughs in your lives. I could see a glimpse of it this week of what it could look like. So what's the way forward? Well, the way forward is let me tell you what I don't want to do. Let me tell you, I do not want to do this. I do not want to say, okay, I'm the pastor. I want the church to pray. So I'm going to start my own prayer group, which about five of you will come to faithfully. And then when you come, we're going to be rebuking the rest of you. I don't want to do that. I've done that way too many times. Where I start the group, and then we just rebuke everybody for not coming. Let's not do that. So there's got to be a better way forward. And so I, I still think the better way forward is to continue to hit prayer in our ethos communities. Some of you pray more in your ethos communities than others, but I want to continue to urge you, in your ethos communities... Be praying communities. And don't just do like 55 minutes of prayer request and five minutes of prayer. You know what I'm saying? It's like, are we ever going to pray? <laughs> We're just going to talk. Okay? Let's, let's kind of open up. We have more prayer. And let's pray for our daily routines, absolutely. But let's pray some big prayers for God to move and, and to actually have some breakthroughs in people's lives. Let's pray expectantly. And I, that, that's one of the areas in our church where we could live into and grow into more of this normal, radical Christian life through prayer. Number four, let me put it up for you. The fulfillment of needs. Look at verse 44. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. Don't you love that? <laughs> you can talk about how you love your church and how you're all in, but I don't think as long as you leave your money out of the conversation, you're not all in. If you're leaving your money out of the conversation, you are not all in and devoted to Jesus and his church. So here we have that in some sense their money was together and available to those who had a need. Look at verse 45. And they were selling their possessions and belongings 
and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And perhaps a lot of them had need because a lot of them were Jews, converted, kicked out of their jobs, kicked out of their families. And so the rest of the church had to come around, sell their goods, and, their, and to give and care for these new brothers and sisters. And there's nowhere in here that you're going to see that this is mandatory. It's an overflow of love. They saw people who had need, and they responded. Now hold your finger here and turn maybe one page to chapter 4. I want to show you something in chapter 4. Still describing the early church. Chapter 4, verse 32. Look at verse 32. It says, Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. But they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them, and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as they had need. A lot to talk about here, but I want to talk about one thing. Look at verse 34. Look at it again, verse 34. There was not a needy person among them. Wouldn't it be great to be part of a church where we say, there's not a needy person among us. Wouldn't it be great at Evanston Battle Fellowship we say, there is not a needy person that goes here that's among us at all. And I believe in, in this aspect, I have been blown away by how many of you care for one another. You'll let someone come live with you. You'll feed them. you try to get them a job. You'll give them financial support. I, I've seen this church embody the gospel and caring for each other deeply, including financially. I have seen it over and over again. You, you may wonder why we don't talk about it up front, because people don't want to be bragged on. But it really happens here. It's amazing. But will you allow me to push you a little bit? Just, just as your pastor, allow me to push you just a little bit on this. In the past, historically, there have been movements that combine this gospel preaching with the care of those who are poor or in need. There's actually this, this movement, you may just know it as a thrift store, but the Salvation Army. Did you know back in the day, they would bring the heat of the gospel and also bring great care to those who are suffering and poor and, and incorporate them into the body. And when a lot of these came together, they would really provide for needs, physical needs, and share belongings. And they have a great history of that. And many of you come from traditions in your church where the emphasis is on caring for the poor, caring for those who need. You really have a strong emphasis from your church background. And I would say among us in this realm, it kind of has a mixed result. Let me explain this mixed result. Some of you really, really give your stuff away. You give your money away. You care for those who are suffering. They're suffering around the world. You give financially. You care for people. And I would say a lot of you do that. You branch out beyond the local church, and you're caring for people all over the place. But I would say most of you don't do it, and it's not because you have a hard heart. I would say a significant number of you do not care for anybody that's suffering poverty, uh, don't have as much. Right now, it's not because you have a hard heart. It's because you just don't know what to do. I mean, that would probably be a lot of you. You just don't know what to do. It's not your heart. is like, oh, I just hate the poor. I don't want to help anybody. That's not you. You have the heart, but you're not quite sure what to do. So this is what I want to tell you. This is, gonna, this is what I think is happening. 
I think a lot of you who don't know what to do, you're just waiting around for, like, us to start some program. It's like, Pastor, if you would just start a program, then we would know what to do. You're looking for something program, and I'm not against programs. But there's programs all over the place, all over the city, all over Evanston. And whether you go the program route or the non-program route, here's what I will emphasize more than anything else. I want to emphasize to you, my brothers and sisters, to start being personally involved with someone who needs help. Don't wait for us to start a homeless program. Go take somebody homeless out to lunch. Develop a relationship with them. I know a lot of you have done that. Just do stuff like that. I, I want to see personal involvement. I want to tell you about my friend. My friend, Mike, many of you saw him. He was here with me this week. He was my best man at my wedding. He came in to stay at my house this week to go to Prelude to Revival. What you don't know about Mike, he is a very intense guy. I, I, I discipled him when he was younger. Um, you know how intense I am? He's intense times 10, me. Can you imagine that, being around that guy? I mean, he is like, he is like John the Baptist beyond John the Baptist. So he does very intense guy. For those of you who met him, you know what I'm talking about. You're not going to believe what he did, this personal involvement. This is, this is legit. So he wanted to make an impact on low-income poor, but he wanted to have a personal involvement, but he didn't want to just jump in and jump out. So he decided to take a job as a dishwasher at a hospital. So, of course, when he interviewed, he's totally overqualified. Took a job as a dishwasher at a hospital so that he could interact with those at a poverty level and share the gospel with them and start to understand what was going on with them. Now, get this. You may think, well, that's great. It's a great summer job, right? Well, my friend took a job as a dishwasher at a hospital to understand the plight of the poor and to share the gospel with them and to, and to invest in them. He did that for 12 years. People say, Mike, what are you doing? You go make some money, man. What are you doing being a dishwasher? And during the time... I, I, I mean, I, I didn't ask him more about this, but my friend Mike just totally looked like a homeless person the whole time. And his coworkers are like, who is this homeless guy coming in here washing dishes with us? Who is this guy? Twelve years sharing the gospel with him, investing in him. And I, I'm, not, I'm not calling you to go do 12 years as a dishwasher. I'm not calling you that, but I'm, I'm calling you to invest in people who are suffering, who need the gospel, to develop relationships with them, to care for their needs, to invest in them. That's the normal radical lifestyle of sacrificial giving of the early church. And the last one, number five, let me put it up. Spread of the gospel. Verse 46 through 47. And day by day, attending the temple uh, together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who are being saved. <laughs> wow. So they're meeting, they're worshiping, they're praying, they're caring for one another, and boom, people are getting saved. The gospel's going to be preached. God's adding to their community. And that's what God wants to do. He wants us to proclaim the gospel. He wants to add to our community. He wants people to be saved, to know Jesus. And if we look at the church, it's filled with historical movements. Right, mission movements, church movements, bringing the gospel around the world so that people can be reconciled to the Father through Jesus. And we, we see it all the time. We've seen it around the world. It's happening now. It's happened in the past. Revival's breaking out in China, South America, all over the place. These movements are just boom. And then I look at us, and I say, well, how are we doing? 
How are we doing in sharing the gospel and spreading the gospel? And, and, and I would say this, my brothers and sisters. I'm not content or satisfied where we're at. We can brag and boast, not brag in a bad way, but boast that, yes, this church has sent out missionaries all around the world, and we're still doing it. We have a lot of you just ready to go. This church has planted three churches in the past three to four years. That just doesn't happen. So praise God for those things. But I don't want these great efforts around the world and around the country to make us think that we are for sure spreading the gospel here locally. Because I would say for the most part, it's probably been a while since you've shared your faith with someone else. It's probably been a while since you've communicated the gospel to someone who doesn't know Christ. And what I want to see happen in my life and in your life is I kind of want that in a gracious kind of way. I want it to disturb us. One of our members went on a trip recently, and they went on a trip to a conference. And the whole point of the conference was basically trying to figure out how social entrepreneurs can change the world, how they can impact the world. And my friend, who's part of this congregation, a member here, said that as he was there, they're talking about changing the world but he personally, through the whole time, left God out of the picture. So it was kind of all about him and his effort. And while he was at this conference and he was in the area, he had the opportunity to share the gospel with three different people. And each time the opportunity that was clear, clear, clear came up, each time he didn't do it. And he said he felt like he was Peter, denying the Lord three times. Opportunity came up, nope, opportunity, nope, opportunity, nope. And it bothered him, and it disturbed him. And I want some of that, don't you? Where <laughs> it just bothers you and disturbs you. In fact, the elders have been talking in our church, and we can say, as, as great as things are going here, we're disturbed. We're bothered by our lack of gospel sharing by our church's lack of gospel. I know some of you are sharing the gospel. That's great. But by far, most of us aren't. And that should bother us. Because this is good news that is to be proclaimed so people can know Jesus and live forever. And so we want this to continue to stir us up and to disturb us and bother us so we can start to live in this normal radical of the early church where people are getting saved. People are not going to be getting saved if we're not preaching the gospel. It's just not going to happen. So here it is, Acts chapter 2. To many of us, it may be radical. What we're trying to say, normal, radical. That's what we want. And we want the balance. We don't want to be throwing out stuff. We want it all. And we want to live it all among us. So where this gospel renewal will happen to us is just the norm. And what happened to us this week in prelude to revival, we say, no, that's normal. As I was worshiping this week and being living life with you, praying in the morning, I thought to myself, I never want this to end. I want this to go on forever. And it will go on forever in eternity. But my brothers and sisters, we are together now. Most of you are going to be somewhere else 10 years from now. Some of you are going to be somewhere else 10 months from now. Some of you are going to be somewhere else 10 days from now. But right now, we are together in this generation in Evanston. And I want to be a part of something normal, radical now with you now 
course on into eternity, course later, but we're together now. I want to walk in this now. And I know that Jesus Christ is the head of his church, and he's still going to transform us. And he's going to, he's going to transform us in our heads and our hearts and our, and our hands so that we can bring glory to him in every single thing we do. And I want to live in this right now. And I want to say what is normal for them, not to be radical anymore, but to be the normal radical for me and for all of us. Let's pray. Father, I know there's areas here that, that we overlook as individuals, that we dismiss, that we say we don't have time for. Most of us in here would say we don't have time for fellowship. We don't have time for fellowship. We don't have time to be in, in hanging out with brothers. We don't have time for ethos communities. We don't have time for, for that, not at all. But Lord, I just ask you to convict that person here this morning who says they don't have time. You convict them that their joy is awaiting in community. And for those of us who say we don't have time for prayer, we try to dismiss it and say it's no big deal. We don't really expect much. Lord, I just ask that you would put in us hope to expect much from you because you're our Father who loves us. You love to give good gifts to your children when we ask. Lord, cause us to ask and to seek, to knock, to cause us to cry out to you. And Lord, with those areas where we, we don't want to talk about you, Maybe we're ashamed of you. We deny you. Whatever it looks like, Lord. Cause us to be excited about sharing great news with people that need to know you because we love them. Not because we're going to get some marks in heaven. No, because we love you. We want them to know and love you as well. And so, Lord, what we see in the early believers, God, do that work in us. Continue to pour out your grace upon us. Awaken us to your gospel truth. And we just want to give you praise and glory. In Christ's name, amen.